welcome to No Power Zone. Um, so this is the second portion of our new series, um, Super Nerds, and today I have the featured Super Nerd of this month, um, Christopher Stoll. Um, so tell us a little bit about um who you are, what you do, what your background is. All right. Uh, hello, everyone. My name's Chris. My background is in biology and uh, with a little bit of you know veterinary anatomy thrown in. I actually have mm -hmm. no background uh, specifically in like uh, fine arts or illustration, all of that is self-taught. Um, and like when it comes to the work that I do, I, uh, I try and draw from my background in science principally and then focus that through an artistic lens. And uh, my most recent book is Poke Anatomy, which is what I think we're mostly talking about today. Mm -hmm. And it's a 300 page scientific guide to the biology behavior abilities of Pokemon uh, sort of presented through a modern veterinary lens, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yes, no, um, that's what I was going to actually transition to next. Your The big focus of what I'm talking to you today is Poke Anatomy. Um, for those of you watching the video portion, um, he was holding up the hardcover, and I have the leather-bound edition here, um, all emblazoned in gold, and it's really nice. I love this. Um, so um, it's a really nice book. I'm actually going to, for those of you in the video portion, open it up and show you a little bit of the pages. Um, so you see... Hang on, there we go. Um, there's like the biolog biological functions of a lot of the cool Pokemon from the original 151. There's descriptions, um, and it's very, it's incredibly detailed, and I love it. Um, so, it, as a Pokemon fan, it's really one of my favorite books ever. Um, so it's awesome. Um, That's so so the the big idea of it though is that it's a deconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, so. If Poke Anatomy is a deconstruction of Pokemon, would you mind starting off with telling us what is a deconstruction? Oh boy, starting with the big questions. So uh, when I think about a deconstruction, I think of it as a way of breaking something that you know feels holistic and complete down into its constituent parts and examining them sincerely and trying to sort of play out the implications and see where those take you. And I really feel like nowadays we're kind of in the golden age of deconstruction and deconstructing media, you know, online articles questioning the implications and the ideas behind Disney films or, you know, Pokemon, video game logic, that sort of thing. There are a lot of really enterprising YouTubers who make a whole career out of breaking down things, deconstructing them. And even in like media itself, I feel like recently, you know, like Cabin in the Woods or the Lego movie or even like Mad Max Fury Road, these are sort of deconstructive narratives where they take a premise that is familiar and engaging, and then they start asking more and more questions and really start delving into, you know, into its core. And so when it comes to, like, my deconstructive work, that's how I like to think about it is, mm -hmm. you know, following through to the most extreme implications and conclusions. Okay, yeah, and that's kind of a good segue into my next question. Um, why do you personally deconstruct things? What do you like about it? Oh, boy. Um, well, like I said, my background is principally in biology and science, mm -hmm. and I like thinking about these uh, sort of absurd premises like Pokemon, which mm -hmm. on the face of it, like there's a lot of impossible stuff going on. And it's something that, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your audience loves, that a lot of people our age loved growing up. Taking that sort of thing, which when you were a kid was, you know, simplistic and uh, surface level, and thinking about the underpinnings of that world fascinates me from like sort of a creative, like a, the 
the point of a creative challenge, mm -hmm. like working backwards to imagine is, is any of this possible? To what degree does this premise play out? Is a walking plant like bell sprout supposed to be just accepted on a child? Like, oh, it's just we that is a talking walking plant, bell sprout. Or is yeah. there a scientific function or reason of why bell sprout's mm -hmm. able to have its legs and, and its mouth and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And it, it appeals to me. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, no, no, keep going. No, uh, it appeals to me too, just because I feel like that's the way a lot of people, myself included, sort of move through the world. We engage with systems and people sort of on the surface level, and we don't often think about the complex underpinnings that, you know, fit into everything that we interact with. And so I, I get a real, like, kind of artistic thrill from examining things that at first seem simple, but have some real depth to them. So that's the, that's yeah. the, uh, the interest for me. Okay, very cool. So then what is your background in Pokemon? How are you familiar with the series? Oh boy, I was at ground zero when Pokemon came to the States back in the 90s. I think it was like eight or nine years old when it really got big. And so mm -hmm. every recess, I had the cards, I played yellow, blue, and red, all to completion. First generation was something I lived and breathed back when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, after that, uh, played through gold and silver, kept, you know, a pretty healthy interest in the mythology and the games and the, you know, the, a lot of the fan art just as like in that period in the early 2000s when fan communities were really sort of burgeoning online. Mm -hmm. I was involved in a lot of that and really enjoyed it. And then sort of lost track of it um, when I like made it, it past high school and into college. And then recently started really considering it again through this new lens specifically with regard to poke anatomy so right. I, like i think the last one i played well i played sun mm. and really enjoyed that my brother got me a copy for christmas like two years ago all right um so this we'll sort of tie all these recent questions in together um so why did you decide to deconstruct pokemon what's the purpose of why you selected pokemon um go a bit more into that maybe oh boy well like i said i, I was always a big pokemon fan so i had more mm. than a passing familiarity with you know, um, the mythology, the canon, the way that yeah. Pokemon is supposed to sort of live and breathe and inhabit the world. Mm -hmm. And my interest in biology and vertebrate anatomy tied in really naturally with that. Mm -hmm. Because if I wanted to choose, I sort of, I wanted to choose a subject um, for this weird desire to deconstruct. And it could have been aliens, it could have been Star Trek or Star Wars, it could have mm -hmm. been... Um, you know, figures in literature, Lord of the Rings, but Pokemon presented such a wide variety of life forms mm -hmm. with such an intriguing variety of abilities and skills and limits. And some of them were, you know, really, really out there. You look at something like mm -hmm. Alakazam, and like what sort of creature could that possibly parallel with in our real world? What preposterous abilities, how does that function? And then you have something like Staryu mm -hmm. or Magikarp which are much more, or like Pidgey, you know, mm -hmm. which, which are much closely, much more closely tied to actual organisms. Mm -hmm. And so that provided a wide variety of things to practice with and to look into and sort of a gradient from like plausible way over here with Pidgey, all the way to these insane abilities and incredible conceptions of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, one of my favorites in terms of the how does that work was um, Gengar and the Ghastly Star Evolution line. Um, in the book, they are made out to be bacteria, right? And they are bacteria specifically from a living organism that had died. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that way you get this sort of um, ability that they are like able to phase through things that are more gaseous, and you mm-hmm. also keep that sort of death um, and ghost ambience with them as well. And I thought that was brilliant how you just um, sort of put a real-world explanation to the creation of Ghastly Haunter and Gengar. So that's my kudos to you right there. Thank you. Um, and moving on, though, uh, so what were the shell? This is actually perfect segue. Actually, um, what were the challenges of trying to put real-world science and explanations into uh, topics such as Pokemon? Well, like uh, I was working backwards from some really incredible premises, and I wanted to like capture these two really difficult and kind of contradictory ideas. I wanted mm-hmm. it to be um, scientifically plausible wherever possible. I wanted to make this something that tied in with real biology and was not just, you know, preposterous notions uh, thrown on the page. And I also wanted to keep it as consistent as possible with Pokemon lore and the canon thus far. And so with something like uh, Ghastly, like you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. I want to, like even the really outlandish Pokemon, I wanted to tie in with like, like, actual biological, physiological phenomenon in the real mm-hmm. world, the way organ systems or organisms work. And in that case, you know, if it's a colonial intelligence comprised of bacteria, you can talk about how something without a central nervous system in the real world can still navigate around obstacles, can still find food, can function, can reproduce. Um, and you don't lose that association in the canon, like in the canon of Pokemon mm-hmm. with the dead and the dying. It can be these necrotic bacteria and you, you try and bridge that gap wherever you can with something like Grimer, you know, uh, based it on the anatomy of slime molds. They're these like protoplasmic sheaths with all these free floating nuclei inside. And I was looking for something like, it's gotta be a detritivore, it's gotta eat like dead decaying matter, it's gotta be toxic and kind of amorphous. And I was able to find something in the real world that tied in with that and still didn't contradict, you know, the Pokemon canon. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, staying true to the characters, but also not just ignoring the fact that, you know, mice aren't electric. There has to be a reason inside this mouse that allows you to use Thunderbolt attack. Like, maybe looking at eels. Actually, I haven't looked at Pikachu in the book yet. Um, But maybe using, like, eels. How did did she even describe it? Let's let's take a look, maybe. Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Pikachu's, what, number 25, I think? It is. Uh, You're right on the money with the eel thing. Okay, yeah based, at least in part, on the anatomy of electric eels. They have these mm-hmm. organs called electrocytes, which shunt sodium ions mm-hmm. along the length of their body to create this electrical potential, and they can release it all at once in the form of a discharge. And so, like, transplanting that uh, organ system from a real existing creature sort of into the body of a mammal is a way of exploring this incredible biological phenomenon, actually, like, using... Pokemon as a lens to appreciate like real science and the beauty of biology and alternatively biology is a way of exploring and delving into Pokemon. There mm-hmm. it is. Yep. And I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to point to it, but there's a I hope I'm pointing to it, the secondary electrolyte electro electrocyte, is that what you called mm-hmm. it, right? Electrocyte. Yes. yes. And so yeah, that's very cool. Um and, and so yeah, staying true to the characters but also having actual logical explanations, yes. Um, so, moving on, this is actually just more of my own personal interest. Um, were you the kid who got a huge kick out of dissecting the frogs in school? Oh boy, not really. I went to public school for most of my life, and we didn't get frogs. I think I dissected a worm, uh-huh. and then, and that was no fun, because, you know, it's just... It's just, just a worm. Yeah, it's just a worm. It's just, like, it's mostly dirt in there. It's so mm-hmm. small. 
yeah. like clumsy little kid hands. And then um, later on, at some point, we dissected cow eyes. And I thought that was uh-huh. gross because they had a tendency to spray. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even my iron stomach has limits. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I, I was always fascinated um, in the abstract with biology and, and, you know, the way that bodies function. Okay. But I never, uh, I never got elbow deep. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so moving on, what was your favorite Pokemon to deconstruct? And what's your favorite work in general that you've just done overall? Oh boy. All right. Um, I really enjoyed some of the more like peculiar ones, especially ones based on like prehistoric life. Mm-hmm. Um, paleontology is also like kind of a, a side interest of mine. And so I liked okay. being able to base, for example, Gyarados mm-hmm. on the sort of hypothetical deep sea predators that or not hypothetical, but like the hypothetical biology of deep sea predators that no longer exist. Okay. And to delve into that literature, every Pokemon that I put together required, um, in addition to all the illustration and the writing, like some research. And often okay. that was for me the most invigorating part. And I loved mm-hmm. with like Lapras, with Aerodactyl, with Gyarados, being able to look into the past and find creatures that no longer existed mm-hmm. and to sort of think meaningfully about how they might work and how they can tie in with these creatures in the Pokemon world. And that's where it feels like, like our world and its life and the Pokemon world are, are closest together when you're looking at yeah. things like dinosaurs. Because mm-hmm. dinosaurs are things that no longer exist but did, so you were mm-hmm. able to bridge the gap of things that don't exist and things that do exist by things oh, that yeah. no longer... Okay, that's very cool. Okay, It's kind of this like additional level of separation mm-hmm. where yeah. you, you can't study them directly, but just like Pokemon, they, they exist in some mm-hmm. ways in like the collective imaginations and collective understandings of yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, favorite work in general, then? Any specific ones? You have some stuff behind you as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is uh, stuff I, I pick oh, up. Oh, you pick up cons? Got it. Okay, never mind. All right, but what's what's your favorite work you've done then? Um, you've done some Disney princesses as adventures that have been popular as well. Uh, oh, man, that was a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I... It's hard to choose a favorite work. Often, Okay, I, I, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, often I find that, like, the way that I feel about a work in the moment doesn't necessarily translate over time. Mm-hmm. So there's some pieces that I was extremely excited to put together, but you know, six months later, I feel kind of disparaging about. And there are All other right. pieces that I never got that thrill of excitement producing, but that ultimately I can always look back fondly upon. Some of the okay. Pokemon in the book really enjoyed um, doing them, but none of the, because those were part of a collection, none of them are mm-hmm. individually like really, really incredible. Um, I think my most recent piece that I've been really happy with was probably this mechanical um, breakdown of D.Va. Okay, from Overwatch. yes, Overwatch, yes. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I really enjoyed doing that. And so far, that one's the one that like, I've, I think most fondly of. But hey, you know, in a couple of weeks, I might mm-hmm. have totally changed. Yeah, all right, understandable. Um, and I, I like how you brought that up because we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We got a few more questions um down the line for that one though. Um, but so, what did you hope audiences would sort of think about Poke Anatomy? Um, what do you think readers should take away after reading it? Hmm. I think um, the goals were most like there were there were multiple goals and motivations working all at once. I wanted it to be something that would reinvigorate people's love of Pokemon, which I felt mm-hmm. like I'd lost a little bit growing up and was mm-hmm. able to rediscover through this deconstructive lens. You know, when you 
when you're in your 20s, uh, it can be um, harder to engage with it just like totally at face value, at least mm -hmm. for me. Uh, and so even though I still love the games, I want to be able to like think about it and investigate it deeper. And so I hope that in mm -hmm. a certain sense, it encourages people to reconnect with that childhood love of Pokemon that they may have had and has since waned. In another sense, I'd like for it to teach people like a little bit of biology, a little bit of science. Mm -hmm. I try to keep that consistent and you know make it something that people would really enjoy. I get a lot of messages from like biology teachers, uh, like high school science teachers who say they bought the book to try and get their kids interested in in body science, body systems by connecting it to something they love. So I hope that you know conversely, it will like get people interested in science. That it'll uh, kind of you know connect them with that. I always think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess like a final goal is to kind of like unsettle and perturb people. There's something okay. like, not, not in a hostile way, but, um, there's something kind of peculiar about looking at a Pikachu, mm -hmm. this cute cartoony thing about which you don't have, you've never really had to think like, well, does it have a skull or like a brain beneath that or, or muscles above that and mm -hmm. considering the biomechanics there. I think I think that it's a fun mental exercise personally to kind of to engage with that, the preposterousness okay. of it. Something like Meowth mm -hmm. with the huge head and the eyes. It's mm -hmm. like a weird, like a Burton-esque peculiarity to like thinking about that even for a moment. And I, I like seeing um, kids like come up to my work at a at a booth at a con or something mm -hmm. and being like, oh it's so gross. Oh my God. But I love it. Like that sort of repulsive back and forth. What's, you know, just just even for a moment, making someone hold those two kind of contradictory okay. emotions together. That's cool. Very nice. Um, but moving on. Uh, so this might be a little bit vague, um, but it's kind of broad, I guess. Um, what do you think about when you're going to deconstruct a character? You know, what sort of do you try and focus mm -hmm. on? I guess. Well, like, uh, specifically in terms of, like, the artistic process, the first thing I do is just draw the um, the creature itself without, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't layer from the inside out generally. I'll typically okay. draw Pikachu as Pikachu is. Mm -hmm. uh, and that way the biology doesn't get in the way of the character. I want okay. to sort of work backwards from Nintendo's characters and flesh in, you know, flesh out the biology behind that or its mechanics um, and I don't want my preconceptions of how something should work mm -hmm. interfere with like its connection to the character. So yeah. usually if I was drawing Pikachu, draw Pikachu first, and then I would like, uh, save that layer in my, my program and sort of cut away sections and begin to think sort of layer deeper and deeper. What's underneath that? Um, how does this function? And in that regard, like usually that's where the research enters in, but you know, mm -hmm. um, it varies from piece to piece. Like uh, on some of the more mechanical pieces I've been doing more recently, um, there's much, much less research. It's more about attempting to present visually the way that something functions. Mm -hmm. um, and then with biology, um, you kind of you have to kind of know how the organs look because there's nothing about a lung. Like if you didn't know anything about biology and looked into a body, there's nothing about a lung just looking at it that indicates its function particularly. Okay, yeah, that makes uh, sense. Yeah. Like, you know, like if you looked at a lung and a kidney together, you know, you'd be like, uh, I don't necessarily know which one is which, but when it's like a, go ahead. So like, it, it all goes back to just having understanding prior, like, 
looking at a long... We just automatically know as, like, educated people that that's how you breathe. But if you don't have that kind of knowledge to begin with, how do you showcase that, right? Exactly. Yes, okay. Um, and so, like, yeah, with something mechanical, like a piston has sort of an implicit function mm -hmm. that you can understand by its structure. Organs don't necessarily have that. You need sort of a baseline familiarity. Mm -hmm. And so I try and think about the audience, what they might be familiar with what I need to label. Mm -hmm. um, I try and view it from the perspective of someone who's picking up the book for the first time, pulling it open. Mm -hmm. And I want that, like, the sense of what this illustration is and what this illustration is trying to convey sort of come across instantly. And so, okay, yeah, yeah. I, ho I hope that makes sense. It makes sense to me and hopefully our listeners, um, it makes sense to them too. Um, I think right. you, you're very good at your craft of sort of explaining these things that not everyone should be familiar with. I think that's one of my um, big things of why I like it. And um, you're not like you're self-trained in the art world. I was in art school for a semester and I had a lot of friends in the illustration department. The point of illustration is always to convey the message to the reader clearly and concisely so that an imbecile could figure it out just by looking at it. And I think you do a great job of um, getting that across, um, especially like there were kids like s specifically for um, medical and biological illustrations, mm -hmm. and so their task is like this is a heart, this is all the parts of heart, this is the function, and you should be able to look at it and say, yep, that's a heart, that's what that does. Um, so kudos to you, you really are um, you. great at and explaining like the, and showcasing. That's so, so yes. sweet. I'm blushing. <laughs> um, it's another like weird thing with biology specifically. It's just, just like clearly differentiating everything. Like mm -hmm. if you look at actual biology or if you've ever seen like a dissection, not that I recommend anyone go look up any videos, but mm -hmm. um, everything's sort of indistinct and interwoven. Mm -hmm. And part of the goal in any medical illustration is to um, sort of differentiate things mm -hmm. and, and clarify without reducing or like reducing its its actual complexity. So just like where I'm trying to strive between scientific scientific accuracy and Pokemon canon, I'm so too trying to describe, like, find a happy place between, like, concise, clearly conveyed illustrations and accuracy to mm -hmm. the actual structures, which are not themselves usually very clear or totally mm -hmm. differentiated in the body. Um, so. One thing, I'm not an expert, but maybe, like, an example might be, like, where's the small intestine begin mm -hmm. and the large intestine end, you know, maybe they're not as well laid out or visibly identifiable. Um, in, or color-coded. Yeah, color. It, like, so when you're illustrating this, you have to make sure the audience and readers understand this is the small intestine and this is the large intestine, and that's, they're separate. And I think that's something you do good as well. Oh, thank um, you. But yeah. Um, going back, though, um, so... What would you like to tell us about the purpose, uh, content, and creation of the book? Um, I actually want you to take us on the journey of Pokanatomy from the project's beginning, middle, and end, if you can. Wow, all right. So uh, the project <laughs> began sort of as a fluke. Um, mm -hmm. I had this idea in my mind uh, that I really wanted to do some deconstructive illustrations of popular characters. It was a motif that I'd seen toyed with a little bit. I think I'd seen like a Godzilla, maybe even um, like a Yoshi or something floating around the internet. And my my initial impression was like, I think I could do that better. I think that there's like thematic and like artistic meat here that I could dig into. 
And so I did an illustration. I did like five or six illustrations of, mm -hmm. you know, the first couple of Pokemon that interested me. And I think it was the starters, Charmander, Bulbasaur, Squirtle, uh, Pikachu, probably then did like Jigglypuff and Scyther, just some others that I thought were mm -hmm. interesting for personal reasons and sort of tossed them out onto my social media and like mm -hmm. the internet generally. And, you know, um, I illustrate as much as I can all the time. And mm -hmm. so I'm always putting stuff out and typically people, you get the fans that react positively, but in this case, it really like blew up and suddenly mm -hmm. uh, Dorkly was calling and like Comedy Central's website and um, I was getting like, questions from magazines, online periodicals and others. And that like enormous reaction surprised me. I felt like there was a real desire um, at that moment. And I guess this was about two years ago, give or take, that I really started for this sort of thing. And, um, but even then I, at, you know, after that popularity, I wasn't necessarily like, okay, I'm going to do the whole book, 151, 152 ultimately, because the uh, Togepi's in there, mm -hmm. uh, illustrations. That was not part of the plan, but then I started getting really positive reactions um, specifically from younger people. And in addition, like those teachers I was telling you about, yes. people, mm -hmm. like, and that convinced me almost single-handedly that this was something I wanted to pursue, that I was willing to dedicate some time to putting it together. And so starting from there, I like cloistered myself away for six months to get as many Pokemon as I could get done and just mm -hmm. like, tackle that, see if it works. Uh, after that, I had about 70 to 100 more or less finished with various stages of writing. Mm -hmm. And so I went from there, took it to Kickstarter to see if I could like keep Fun this ball rolling. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like actually make it viable. So I started, you know, I got the project half to two thirds done um, after an exhausting six months. And I like tried to present it to people. And there was, again, like a really positive really overwhelming response mm -hmm. that convinced me once again, like, hey, there's a demand for this, people want it. Um, people are really supportive and encouraging. And that ended up getting me through the next six to eight months. The whole project in earnest took about a year and change to get all that done. Mm -hmm. um, so that's 300 or so illustrations. And that's like the Pokemon and their organs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of like, depth and layers and basically working on it full time with really, really generous, encouraging support from like the fan community, from Pokemon people, from Nintendo fans, from lovers of biology and deconstructive literature. Mm -hmm. I'm actually surprised it didn't take you like over two years when you say that, um, because like, it's not as simple as just drawing one of the Pokemon and then just drawing all 152, including Togepi, um, you're drawing all the organs you're drawing, like how things should, you're thinking about how things should work, you're writing descriptions, um, and it's it, it's a whole book too, um, and so I'm surprised that actually that that quick. So once again, oh, much speaks to your talent. Yeah. I think I think it helped just because like um, there was a lot less sketching or conceptual work that I had to do okay. because the Pokemon already existed. That makes like, I, sense. I knew, yeah, I knew what a Magikarp looked like, so mm -hmm. I was able to to draw that, and then the okay. Like, and don't get me wrong, it was very time consuming, mm -hmm. but I wasn't inventing creatures out of whole cloth. I that was sense, yes. delving into how th something that already existed functioned. And I think that really helped like maintain the momentum of the project and kept me from being burnt out. Cause if I had to like make mm -hmm. up a creature every day for a year, I think I would go totally insane.
that makes sense. Um, and you also can, like, when you, you can move on to say, oh, well, Magic Crypt's halfway done, but maybe I want to like, skip to Vileplume, because Vileplume's how I'm feeling today, or something. Hmm. Um, so, going back to just the, the purpose, content, and creation, though, we want to touch on that. Just, just generally? Like, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Like, yeah. You wanted to speak with that, I believe, um, as well, previously, correct? Yeah, um, like I said, I think... One thing that really, this is exactly the sort of book I really, really would have wanted as a kid. Mm -hmm. And that was a big motivator once I started getting responses from younger people, from like teenagers and from people with kids mm -hmm. who said that the artwork, the initial pieces have really captured them. Mm -hmm. And so aside from just the goal of potentially like teaching science or like igniting a love of science in a lot of younger people, I really enjoyed like... I'm kind of enamored with the idea of literature that is in in world that like that feels like it's come straight from another world, even okay. something that's mundane like a medical textbook. Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, uh, so my my dad is a physician, and growing up, I have distinct memories of like these old medical books he would have around my house. And before I could even really read them, I would open them up and I'd like thumb through them and I look at the pictures and all of it seemed preposterous and fantastical. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't, I couldn't really intuit the meaning. I just understood that it was this source of knowledge and it was referencing this world outside of my mm -hmm. scope of knowledge and experience. And that intrigues me. And I like, I think later on, we'll get a chance to talk about some of my other books and projects that I've done. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are meditations on this theme of like, uh, what like sort of guides to or journals from or pieces of literature from alternative realms of thought or matter or reality and in this mm -hmm. case one that sort of feels like something that might exist in a in the pokemon world mm -hmm. without a lot of like equivoc without a lot of like obfuscating or like you know distance between you and the reader you pick it up and you feel like you're holding something that plopped right out of professor oak's bookshelf mm -hmm. um I had a thought, and oh yeah, so um, with going back to what you were saying, I really like that as well, because as, you know, as we're walking around every day, you know, we're not looking at our muscles, um, aren't visible, and our skeletons aren't visible, and so as, especially as a kid, you know, seeing that, you know, is really a foreign visual, um, to see, that's not something you probably have ever seen or understood, you, you couldn't read, you said at the time, so um, that's that's very interesting to think about, going back to that sort of child mindset of this thing that is very real, but to you it's very fantastical and fictional and foreign. Um, moving on though, uh, so, uh, oh, you've you've also done characters like Samus Aran, um, we talked about D.Va from Overwatch, you've also done uh, Farah and Zenyatta. Um, from Overwatch, you've done Darth Vader, Master Chief, Iron Man. Um, so what's, like, the contrast between looking at the deconstruction of biology and robotics? Uh, it's an excellent question. Uh, we touched on it just a little bit earlier mm -hmm. where, like, with biology, you need, I think, a little bit more of a, a, like, a scientific understanding if you want to present it in a way that feels compelling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a lot of like squishy overlocking, interlocking overlaid systems. And with something that's more mechanical, um, it really becomes more of an artistic exercise because, you know, of course, Iron Man's suit, the things that it can do, there's no existing 
mechanical system in the world that can create that. There is something in the world that exists that I can reference for like Pikachu's biology. Mm. But you know, with you know, Diva's suit, you are attempting to convey the idea of like a big hydraulic leg. And uh -huh. there's nothing there's nothing that you can refer back to. So it really it becomes less of a scientific exercise and more of an artistic one. Okay. And growing up, it was like, I've, I've kind of a smeary, smooth digital style, and it be, makes it very easy to draw like soft, squishy, flowy things. And it's very challenging for me to draw mechanical structures, gears, okay. cogs, straight lines. They just don't lend themselves to my particular style and disposition. And so it started as a way of like challenging myself and like delving more deeply into the artistic side and less the scientific side of okay. this like weird this weird thing that I do. No, that that makes yeah. sense actually. Um because these this things don't exist so it kind of is with no real way to base it. It's just imagination. Mm -hmm. How do you think it work in your imagination? Um mm -hmm. as well as going back to your style like machines are very they're factory assembled, I guess is what I'd say. So they are perfect, they're angular, they're cold, they're metal and and it it varies different from human flesh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so, why do you like to look at these fantastical and fictional characters as opposed to real animals, people, and plants? And I think you might have already touched on that a little bit earlier, too, right? Um, I don't know if I, 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 th I think I like them both, ultimately. You like them both? Like, mm -hmm. It's, yeah, I, uh, I always, always, always enjoy learning more about the world, about biology, about living organisms okay. and so it's this seamless continuum in my mind um with like what i enjoy doing i enjoy mm -hmm. being able to like imagine the impossibility uh of these creatures sort of like bring them from their own world into a space that feels plausible okay. um and at the same time i do also love like looking at things that do exist and admiring the sort of incredible implausibility of some of their, you know, you know, behaviors, abilities, you know, it's, there's, it's like a, again, it's like a, a gradient from, you know, the impossible to the totally mundane and sort of blurring that gap wherever possible and making the real world a little more fantastic and making these fantastical worlds a little more real. Okay. If that makes sense. No, that makes sense. It's bridging fiction to reality in mm -hmm. their own respective worlds into just one. More or less, am I, am I comparing that right, would you say? I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so, you wanted to talk about your other books, um, so tell us about your other books. The Feminomicon, um, I, I always can't pronounce the, the Necronomicon from, um, so if I'm pronouncing this one wrong too, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and A Natural History of the Fantastic, as well as the store um, Metaverse Books. Um, want to talk uh, a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the store Multiverse Books. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, it's, uh, so that's like my online Etsy storefront and my own book printing company. Um, I, I noticed recently all my books have very difficult titles to say. A little bit of a, a word jumble. Poke Anatomy, uh, Feminomicon, Natural History of the Fantastic. Um, the Feminomicon is the one that I did before Poke Anatomy. And that was a, it's a take on like the Necronomicon, the famous Lovecraftian yes. tome. And in this case, it's like a, uh, sort of like an illustrated encyclopedia or even like a monster manual of bestiary of mythical women from all around the world. So like goddesses, mm -hmm. 
demon monsters. Um, some are good, some are bad, some are really scary. But they're all based in actual human folklore from Japan, China, Native America, the Middle East, Medieval Europe, Africa, Australia. And um, I did that one just because, like, I also have a, a love of mythology and human folklore. And I wanted to sort of, and I, after doing some research for my book, A Natural History of the Fantastic, which was the first book I did, I wanted to... I found all these like incredible, sort of working backwards chronologically, but I found all these incredible creatures while I was researching that book, um, most of which were unacknowledged or unknown. Mm -hmm. Things like the Futakuchiona, which is this, you know, the Japanese woman with the mouth growing off, off the back of her head. That really interested me and I wanted the chance to draw these incredible creatures in sort of a horror style and collect them and to shine some light on this sort of forgotten, neglected, and long-distant part of human mythology. Um, so, going back to Pokemon in this section really fast, um, <laughs> have, are you familiar with a Generation 3 Pokemon named Mawile? Absolutely, that's yes. based on the Futakutiona. That's what I was thinking, okay, yes, yeah. so, nice little connection there, too. Yeah, um, it, all, it all ties together. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you wanna... Jinx, too, is also based on a, an old Japanese uh, folk legend of, like, this sort of mountain-dwelling... Oh, uh, like, Raiju? Not Raiju. Rai... No. You're like, I actually don't remember exactly what it's called, so I feel foolish for bringing it up, but they're, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that is, it has its roots in, in like, the mythology of Japan mm -hmm. and those figures. Um, then maybe you want to talk about the uh, natural history of the Fantastic bit more, maybe? or <laughs> So that one was my first book that I ever did, um, and it was like my first weird labor of love and my first toe-dipping into the idea that I might be able to do art for a living and combine it with my love of biology. That one is uh, in some ways like a scientific guidebook to mythical creatures. And it's okay. framed a lot more like a, like a narrative. It's this doomed scientific journey through a strange Lovecraftian world. Um, and uh, it was very personal at the time because I saw it as reflecting my own attempts to bridge a love of the fantastical, of centaurs, dragons, trolls, mermaids, goblins, with my fixation on the scientific. And in the book, the the narrator, like the the dot, you know, these pieces of letters and scripts from within the world, um, all are attempting to reconcile the impossibility of these creatures okay. with like, a desire to have a scientific worldview. And it's about, you know, confronting this like superstitions and this and the supernatural. Mm -hmm these fearful monsters, you know, dragons and trolls, and discovering that these horrifying beasts that have you know, terrified humankind, have like ignited nightmares, have um, uh, like, a, like a place in the world mm -hmm. and a, an underlying structure and a reason for being here too. Um, and so it's kind of like Poke Anatomy in some ways, because, but less scientific and more narrative more about investigating that the philosophy of like where the you know impossible realm of human myth mm -hmm. and the plausible and practical worlds of human science interact yeah um i i'm sort of taking a wild guess here with this sort of comparison um but so the way i'm seeing this description is um just like with poke anatomy you're taking the fact that um you know, Pikachu, ha we can't just accept that Pikachu has the ability to create electricity. There has to be some 
function, some reason for it, in a way that maybe Pikachu fits into the ecosystem, um, etc. And you're trying to tie the same sort of um, connections with these monsters. Like, there's a reason why um, these... You know, I've written the name, but like, um, the ice ladies, um, in like Japanese mythology, you know, they're like ice yeah. ghasts. Oh, they're not Willow the Wisp, though. That's different, I believe. Um, they're like, uh, are you thinking of like Yukiona? They're yes, like these, yes. The snow women? Yes, snow women. Thank you. Um, like they have a place in the ecosystem as well as they have like reasons for being. They have reasons of why, not reasons, but I guess like, I guess more maybe like biological functions as well. Um, the narrator was trying to grasp but these things have you know belonging in the world i guess right yeah yeah specifically with a natural history of the fantastic it's like yeah like how, how dragons might fly or produce fire mm -hmm. um how imps or centaurs could function how they could coexist in an ecosystem along humans sort of like just just attempting to look at something as preposterous as like a centaur and say like all right just for the purposes of like this book, this mindset, this entertainment value, let's take this at face value. How might it work? And like, just have fun from there. And again, like okay. the Feminomicon is not a scientific book. It's more like just a mythology text, mm -hmm. but it still um, has that kind of deconstructive flair where we're investigating like, I think you learn something about human history, about human myth and about human identity by looking at mythology, just as you do by looking at our scientific disciplines. All right. Um, are there any closing thoughts that you have? Um, do you like anything else you'd like to say while you have this chance to on the podcast? Oh, boy. Um, I'm not sure I have anything left to say. I think we've covered just about everything, except All right. thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. This has been a really great opportunity and interview, and your work is really interesting and cool. Um, so where can the fans see your work, buy your books, and follow your social media um, accounts? All right, plug time. So mm -hmm. you can follow me on Instagram at Topher Stoll, T-O-P-H-E-R-S-T-O-L-L. -L. Um, I also, like... Uh, have an Etsy store that's Multiverse Books. Um, if you type in Poke Anatomy online, it's one of the first things that comes up. You can also find my work, follow my social media feeds through stallart.com. Um, I do giveaways on Instagram. I've been like trying to take social media a little more seriously and really promote stuff and like put out my work so that people can see it. Because again, I've only been doing this for a couple of years and for the first time in my life, it feels like there's an audience out there who wants to see this stuff. And it's a really exciting, like chance to uh, to interact with fans. So like, please, you know, follow me on all that. All right, cool. And once again, um, you can follow the Nintendo Power Zone as well. Um, here on YouTube for this video portion, or um, on Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play. Um, we upload bi-weekly now, as well as this new series, um, Super Nerds, where we feature um fans who go above and beyond to show their love and obsessions. With, yeah, obsessions with with um, Nintendo and these characters in these worlds. Um, so please follow us, um, episodes bi-weekly. Um, like I said, um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at TheKingBlues, Blues spelled B-L-O-O-Z, and at the Power Zone N Power Zone on Twitter as well. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening, and this has been a great interview. Thank you so much.